I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, we're going all the way to the moon and back with Apollo astronaut Colonel Al Warden. After graduating from West Point with a degree in military science and from the University of Michigan with a master's in astronautical and aeronautical engineering, Colonel Alfred Al Warden had a career in the US Air Force as a fighter pilot and a test pilot before joining NASA and becoming part of the Apollo program. Having served as a member of the astronaut support crew for the Apollo 9 flight and as backup command module pilot for Apollo 12, Al was chosen as command module pilot for Apollo 15 becoming one of only 24 people to have flown to the moon. This interview was recorded at New Scientist Live at the Excel Centre. Thanks to everyone at New Scientist, and particularly to Frank Swain, for helping to arrange it. This is probably one of the most exciting interviews I've ever recorded. So it's probably inevitable that, for the first time in nearly 12 years of recording Little Atoms, I somehow managed to delete one of the files. I've still no idea what actually happened. After a few frantic emails and phone calls... Al very kindly agreed to record that section of the interview again over the telephone. So not only is he a moon-orbiting hero, he's a gentleman as well. Thanks, Al. Thanks a million. So I'm sat with Colonel Al Warden. Al, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure, Neil. First of all, let's talk about why you're in the UK. There's something called World Space Week from the 4th to the 10th of October. What's that? Uh, there are a number of things that I'm doing here in the UK. World Space Week is one. Uh, I came here to New Science Live to uh, help out the British Interplanetary Society. I've been at their booth all week. Uh, we signed some pictures and signed some other things uh, to help raise a little money for them over the past couple of days. So we're working on that. I'm working with my agent, Victoria Southgate, to set up the World Space Week events uh, here in England, uh, it's World Space Week, but every country has to do their own thing. So it's it's not all coordinated. It's it's not a world that puts it together. It's each country that puts together the World Space Week. So we're doing some things here in England and Wales. Uh, we'll be going to uh, Wales uh, next weekend uh, to give a talk uh, in the dark sky area. And uh, that's a one-day thing. Then go back to Birmingham where we're doing a World Space Week event uh, I think the week before that, I think the first and second, we're doing a World Space Week thing in Birmingham at Alton Tower. Uh, and then we're coming back to the Metropole and doing the Star Trek thing the next weekend. Uh, then off to Ireland, where I uh, go wherever I get a chance to come this way, uh, because I've gotten myself involved with and thoroughly enjoy it, involved with an archaeological site over there called oh. Lough Gurr. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the artifacts go back uh, to about 7,000 B.C., and they're quite quite interesting. It's a very, very unique site. And they're also applying for dark sky status, uh, and they have a stone circle, uh, much like Stonehenge. Uh, the stone circle there is about 300 feet in diameter, used the same way that Stonehenge is. It's a calendar. Uh, summer solstice, when the sun comes up, it shines between two rocks on the opposite side, and uh, that's when the calendar got started back in those days. So uh, 
I'll go there to support that. And that'll be pretty much my uh, my visit to England, but then I go on to uh, Switzerland. I'll be in, in Geneva talking to the International School, and, and then I go down to Milan, Italy, where I'm going to be talking at the Space Museum there in Milan, and then back to England for a day and then back home. So it's a, it's a month-long trip. So the British Planetary Society, what, what are their aims? You just mentioned the Dark Skies campaign. Yeah, that is a separate project. I think it's, it's so interesting. Now, Lofger in Ireland is applying for dark sky status, and obviously the sky has to be at a certain luminosity or below some threshold mm-hmm. for a certain amount of time, all that. Uh, it's, a, it's a great thing for astronomers because if they go to a dark sky area, then they're assured of good viewing. Well, of course, unless there are clouds, you know, that, that can always mess up your viewing, but... <laughs> Uh, the dark sky thing is there no extraneous light around, like from a town coming up over a hill or something. You know, you see the glow. Uh, dark sky is what it means, dark sky. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're way, way, in fact, Lofgur is about 20 miles out of Limerick. It's out in the country, way out by itself. So it should be a good site for that sort of thing. And I think it's going to be a, a great thing for astronomers. Uh, I love the fact that here in England, astronomy is such an important part of daily life here. Everybody seems to be an astronomer, an amateur astronomer, and lots and lots of astronomy gets done here. I have friends. In fact, I have a young friend that uh, when he was still in his uh, 10th and 11th year, didn't know what he wanted to do, and I spent an evening with him pointing out all the stars and the constellations and the, the galaxies and that kind of thing. But basically, I pointed out to him the stars that we used as navigation for the Apollo flight and the constellations around them, and he got so excited about it that he went on and went to college and got a degree in astronomy. So we do influence these young people if we do it the right way, I believe. And I think the dark sky thing is something that ties into that and will influence a lot of young people to take astronomy, which is going to be very important. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your early career a little bit before we get to sure. the, the Apollo program. You grew up in, in a large family on a farm. Mm-hmm. How does a farm boy end up at West Point? Well, that's a doggone good question. I did grow up on a farm, had five brothers and sisters. Uh, we all had jobs to do. Uh, my father worked in town. He never worked the farm. I was the oldest son, so I got the job of running the farm. From the time I was 12 until I went to college, at 18, basically the only work that got done on the farm was what I did. I had four cows to milk. I had a bunch of, oh, all kinds of animals. Had the, had the corn and the wheat and the hay and there, all that stuff to do uh, every year. Learned to drive a tractor when I was like 11 years old. As a matter of fact, back in the States back then, if you lived on a farm or you and you had to drive farm uh, equipment, you could get your driver's license when you were 14. So I remember my father taking me down to the driver's license bureau on my birthday, and I got my driver's license when I turned 14. <laughs> kind of fun. We are pretty self-reliant back in those days. Mm-hmm. I did all the work. But I will tell you, those six years running that farm taught me that for the rest of my life, farming was not the thing for me. I just, it, it just, farming, uh, even back then, and it's even worse today, farming has been consolidated to the point where a small farmer can't make it anymore. Mm -hmm. There are too many big farms that uh, have economies and efficiencies of scale, and they can do things a lot cheaper. Uh, And and because they're big, everybody works with them, like the fertilizer people and the insecticide people and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I think it's very difficult for a small farmer unless he's got maybe a dozen cows that he milks and he sells the cream, which is what my grandfather did. Uh, There's really not much future in farming. Small farming. So, but it, it wasn't even that. It was that farm ties you down so completely yeah. uh, that there really isn't anything else in your. You can. I mean, cows got to be milked every day. Yeah. They, they don't care what it's Sunday no, or Monday or Saturday or whatever, uh, and they got to be milked twice a day. And uh, it's very difficult to go anywhere to do anything other than just run the farm if that's if that's what you're going to do with your life. My, my granddad loved it. He was fine with that. He didn't look for anything else. But I grew up with uh, maybe more ambition than just being on a farm. I wanted to do something other than farming. I wanted to do something that would take me away from the little town where I grew up because it was really, uh, it was just kind of dying on its feet. I grew up in a town that was about 70 miles west of Detroit, Michigan, car business. And the car business was beginning to collapse back in those days. And so 
you knew that, that uh, companies in my hometown that made components for cars, like seats, uh, they packed up and moved south for a lot of reasons. Uh, but they left my hometown pretty high and dry. And I realized that uh, that was not the place for me to stay either because nothing was going to happen. So I decided to go out and go as far as I could. And then I went to university for a, a year, and then I got an appointment to West Point. West Point was a godsend because mm-hmm. it didn't cost my folks anything to put me through college. It would be the same thing as Sandhurst here. Yeah. You get paid to go to school, which is kind of nice. Uh, so I went to West Point, and I kind of thought, you know, going down there, the first time I was ever in an airplane in my life was flying from Detroit down to New York to go to West Point. Big experience for me, uh, quite an eye-opener. I got to West Point, and I looked at all the, uh, the other cadets who were being sworn in that same day I was, I looked at these guys and I thought, you know, these guys are all the cream of the crop. I mean, West Point really picks great people. I, I, I don't know that I can really compete with these people. I didn't feel, I didn't feel that confident. Well, what happened is, after three or four months, I realized, hey, we're all the same. We all do the same thing. And actually, I, I pretty much thrived under that, under that regime. But I think a lot of it was because of the discipline, personal discipline, I got by being on the farm. Because you got to take care of everything. It's up to you to take care of the cows. It's up to you to see that they get fed. It's up to you to clean out the stalls. It's up to you to... I mean, you are it, right? And that's a huge, huge responsibility on somebody's back. But it teaches you a discipline because it's got to be done every day. When I got to West Point, I found that the routine was the same every day. You do the same thing every day. Get up at a certain time, go to breakfast, uh, clean up, uh, clean your, clean, you know, shine your shoes, uh, shine your belt buckle, Go to breakfast, go to class. I mean, it's the same routine every day. And I found that pretty much I thrived in that kind of a system. So West Point turned out to be okay for me. I'm Alex Kratoski, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, I was going to ask you, why are the Air Force? I think you might have answered that. Does that go all the way back to that first flight out of Detroit? No. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I really had never given a thought. I went to West Point with the understanding and the thought that I would be an infantry commander. I, that was my kind of my goal when mm-hmm. I first went there. I thought that the thing about West Point is that it bred those officers who lead the charge up the field, up the, up the hill, you know? Uh, the Teddy Roosevelt's of the world, and the, 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 you know, the kind of very strong um, leaders who didn't have their men do what they say, they led by example, and they did it first, and that's the kind of leader I wanted to be. Well, while I was there, the last two years I was there, we were, West Point is organized by companies, and there are maybe, uh, I think there were 100 cadets in my company. We had 24 companies and 2,400 students all together. All, uh, now it's double that, but back then it was the 2,400. We each had a, 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 what we call a tactical officer, which was a captain, major, lieutenant, colonel, somebody who'd been out in the field and got, had some experience. Uh, and a tactical officer was kind of like our godfather for the, mm-hmm. for the company. He took care of all of our problems. He took care of the good things and the bad things. Uh, he inspected the barracks and made sure that we were doing what we were supposed to do. Uh, so they were very important to our... They were kind of the role models that yeah. we had, you know, in growing up. Well, I had I had two tactical officers who were uh, the, associated with my company. They were both Air Force guys. One was a, a football quarterback back in the late 40s. We had Army had uh, West Point Army. Uh, had a football team back in the late 40s that won everything. Uh, and they had a, two guys that played football, uh, Blanchard and Davis, and they were very famous in the football world. They were both All-Americans and this and that and the other thing. But their quarterback was a guy by the name of Arnold Tucker. When I got to West Point in, in the early 50s, I found out he was my tactical, one of the tactical officers. So I got to know, uh, he was a major by then. I got to know Major Tucker pretty well. And there was another... Uh, Air Force guy who was also with him. The two of them kind of took care of our company, and his name was Jim Allen. Uh, Air Force, I uh, believe Jim was a major at the time, too. Jim Allen ended up being the commander of the 
shape forces in Europe, and then he became the superintendent of the Air Force Academy. He was quite a, a, a gifted officer. And these two guys, they were pretty gifted even when they were young, so they, they taught me into going to the Air Force anyway, to make a long story short. Um, and for, for a lot of reasons. And I thought, you know, that was pretty unique, but I was, didn't know about flying. When I went, that, that's when I found out when I went to flight school for the Air Force that I probably had a talent for flying uh, that was unique. It became my thing. So at that time, these must have been the earliest jets. So what sort of thing were you flying? Okay, well, we started out in a little beach craft uh, called the Mentor, uh, and that's what we soloed in, and then we went to a a much bigger uh, gasoline-powered airplane called a T-28. It's uh, it's like uh, here in England, you would would have what we would call a provost. Yes. Which, and a T-28 was much like a provost. Um, And then we transitioned when we went then to our basic training, they had uh, T-33s, which was the first jet airplane that I flew. And that was quite a jump up. That was quite a, quite a change from a propeller-driven airplane to a jet airplane. It was, so, it was so weird. You get a jet airplane up at an altitude, and you're just you're making circles, and you're flying it around. There's no noise. Mm. You're just smooth, and you don't, hear, you don't hear an engine. You don't hear a propeller, and it's very smooth, and it's very weird, eerie at first. You get used to it. Uh, and of course, a jet airplane is uh, twice as fast or more than a propeller airplane. I found in all of that that I had a particular talent for flying blind, blind flying, uh, weather flying, uh, clouds, uh, all weather. I really was able to uh, build myself into the navigation system on the airplane, almost like it was a synergy between me and, and the airplane. And the, the upside of that was that my, my instrument flying was good enough that, I, that they put me in the Air Defense Command, which is all-weather flying. And that's how I got into that. Now, I went from, after I flew T-33s, then I went to another field where I soloed, checked out, soloed in the, the first fighter that I would be flying in the, in the Air Force, and that was an F-86. Uh, but it was an all-weather F-86. It had a radar and all that. It had a fire control system. And so... When I first went into the fighter squadron I was in, back in about 57, we were in Washington, D.C. Uh, we had uh, we flew F-86s for a couple of years, and then we had F-102s, which was a Century Series airplane, supersonic airplane. And F-86s were not supersonic. So anyway, F-102s, F-106s, that's how I got into those. Yeah. And you, you end up in Europe yourself at a place called the Empire Test Pilot School, which mm-hmm. is in England, or it was in England. A lot of the people in the um, the astronaut program were test pilots. What does that give Back you? in those days, yes. Yeah. Is it just, are you, were those guys all just a bit crazy? I think uh, the original guys, see, I was number 35 to be selected into the program. Uh, I would say maybe two-thirds of the guys at that mm. point were test pilots. I think the reason that test pilots were favored, if you will, in addition to the obvious experience that they bring, yeah. This is the fact that test pilots have a little bit different attitude about how things go. Uh, you know, if you're a test pilot, uh, you know, the epitome of being a test pilot is that you're reading all the, your instruments and, and broadcasting the readings to ground control as you are diving straight into the earth and you're going to die. Yeah. But you keep your cool and you keep reading. Okay, that's the test pilot. Uh, I think it had nothing to do with the flight experience. I think it had to do with the mental uh, state uh, of a test pilot, which, which said, okay, buddy, you're going to stay cool no matter what happens. And it turns out in space flight, the only way to survive is to stay cool. When all around you is going to hell, you stay cool, and if you stay cool long enough, you'll figure out a way to solve whatever problem is. But if you panic and start just doing things, you're probably not going to come back. So I, I think there was a, a good rationale for a test pilot. I think when we got into the shuttle program, it was no longer required because the shuttle flew basically like an airplane coming back. It was a glider. I don't think we really needed it. The first flights were all done by test pilots, but I think after that, eh, no real reason to have a test pilot fly a shuttle. A, a pilot could do it. And, and as a matter of fact, the, the program changed so drastically with the shuttle program uh, because uh, two-thirds of the astronauts that were selected were, couldn't fly if they had to. They're all scientists mm. that ride in the back, doctors and astronomers and that kind of thing. 
so the program is primarily made up of, of uh, non-rated people today uh, who are scientists like going to International Space Station. Tim Peake's a good example. Well, Tim's not a good example because Tim is a pilot. Tim is a test pilot. Tim went to Empire Test Pilot School just like I did, uh, which is probably why he got the job. But there are a lot of people in Tim's particular position that go to the International Space Station and they're not pilots at all. So it's it. the whole thing has changed. But when I was there... I think they, they picked guys, a lot of it was, well, in addition to the academics and the physical and all the rest of it. I think uh, looking for a test pilot meant that uh, that particular person had already proven himself in certain ways that he was capable of staying cool under fire. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and I'm talking to Colonel Al Walden, and we're talking about his trip to the moon. And Al, when we left you, you were a test pilot still, and I want to talk about how you how you got to NASA. Did you ever have any ambition to be a, an astronaut? Was that even a thing you could do at that time? Not really. No. No, I really didn't. I never really gave it much thought because I was really after being the best pilot I could be and test pilot in the Air Force. And to do that, I had to go back to college to get some de- uh, science and engineering degrees. And I had to learn to, how to how to fly test airplanes, and I happened to come to England, uh, attend the uh, Empire Test Pilot School at Farnborough uh, to get my test pilot certificate. So when you got all that, lo and behold, uh, if the timing is right, it's also the kind of stuff that NASA was looking for. So they had a selection, which I never gave much thought to before, I was just going to be the best pilot I could, but NASA had a selection program, and uh, I thought, well, what the heck, i got nothing to lose. So I threw my name in, and lo and behold, got selected. But it was because I had followed a path to be a really good pilot and, and a good engineer to boot uh, that uh, gave me the credentials that, uh, that NASA liked. And you were selected, this is April 1966, you're selected as part of a group of 19 other people onto the program, onto the astronaut program. Well, there were basically, eight, as I recall, the number was 830 that were qualified under the basic requirements, under the minimum requirements. And that was you had to be under 35 years old or less than 35. You had to have 1,000 hours of flight time. You had to have a bachelor's degree in engineering or, or, or math. Um, had to be able to pass the physical, of course. Um, and that was basically it for the minimums. Of the 830, a paper study, if you will, or evaluation, cut that number down to 75. That 75 uh, uh, went to San Antonio, Texas, to the Air Force Hospital and, and had a very extensive uh, physical exam that took something like 10 days. And that left 50 of us still in the running. And that 50 went to Houston to do oral and written exams. And based on those oral written exams, then they selected 19 of us. So that's how I got in. And who else? Can you remember a few of the names from the, the 19 who went, who were, who were, we would know from the Apollo program? Oh, you would know, yeah, probably. Stu Russo was on Apollo 14. Ed Mitchell was on Apollo 14. Uh, let's see, Fred Hayes was on Apollo 13. Jack Swigert was on 13. Uh, Jim Irwin and I were on 15. Ken Mattingly and Charlie Duke were on 16, and Ron Evans and Jack Schmidt were on 17. Well, of course, there's then there was John Young on 17 or uh, uh, on 16. Uh, Gene Cernan flew as commander on 17. And at that point, when you joined the program at the beginning of of you know the Apollo missions, were you all did you all know that you were gonna you were gonna get to the moon? What was the what was the sort of feeling like? No, we certainly didn't know. In fact, of the 19, 
There are only, let's see, there are only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There were nine oh, of the eight of the eighteen. Only nine of us made it to the moon. And the others waited for Skylab and for uh, shuttle program and for the International Space Station. Some of them didn't fly for twenty five years after selection. Well, I, mean, I guess I meant beyond that. Did you think that man was going to get to the moon? Did you think this was, although you you know you were joining the program to get us to the moon, were you all convinced it was achievable? Oh yeah, oh yeah. We were we were well enough uh, along in our own. Uh, engineering capacity, if you will, uh, that uh, after spending a couple of years studying all the systems and what, how they had built this thing and what they expected of it, we're all very confident of going to the moon. It was going to be um, risky, but we felt we had like a 90% chance of making it back successfully. You served on the um, the support crew for uh, Apollo 9, which is one of the, the earlier missions that was like a sort of a test mission in orbit around the Earth for the moon. David Scott, who was, who was on 15 with you, was on, was on that mission. What, did, what was your role? I was on a support crew. Um, I took care of a lot of the paperwork and engineering details for the flight. I also tested uh, I, I was in a in that particular spacecraft going down the assembly line and helped do all the final exam or final tests on a spacecraft i was also responsible for the docking system because apollo 9 was going to be the first flight where we took both a lunar module and a command module and we uh, tested docking in earth orbit so i had double duty there i had i did all that and then on apollo 12 you become the backup command module pilot then I was back up for Dick Gordon as a command module pilot, uh, which I thought was a wonderful assignment because Dick Gordon is a great guy and much great fun to work around. Hard worker, but great fun. And he and I spent basically a year and a half together while training for Apollo 12. And then, as it turned out, Dick became the backup command uh, backup commander on 15. So, and I was the, uh, of course, command module pilot. We still had an opportunity to to do a lot of flying together, go around the country together, but not, not quite as much as we had before his flight. Spending all that time with one person could be hard, but you end up being lifelong friends. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we're, we're really good friends today. Yeah, have been for a long time. Now, can you remember what happened when you were selected for the Apollo 15 mission? Well, it was kind of interesting because I was going through a divorce at the time, and uh, my wife just couldn't handle the newspaper people being around and the publicity and the danger and the challenge and all that. So she decided that she'd be better off on her own. So I had a talk with Deke Slayton, who was our, our boss. He was head of the flight crew operations at the time. And I, you know, I was very honest with him, told him what was going on. And, and there was a, there's this uh, a story that went around back in those days about uh, astronauts and having problems with their family life and this, that, and the other thing. And the story was that if you divorced your wife when you're in the program, you'd probably get kicked out of the program uh, because they wanted the world to understand that all these astronauts were kind of like Boy Scouts and they're all such squeaky clean people. Well, none of, nobody's that clean. Um, Deke Slayton told me that as long as my divorce was quiet and it stayed out of the paper and there was no scandal attached to it, it didn't make any difference to my flight assignment. And the day my divorce was finalized was the day that they publicly announced the crew. So he stuck in there with me. And I was the very first one in the program to um, actually go through a divorce before I made a flight. There are lots of other divorces, but everybody waited until they made a flight before they decided to get a divorce. Do you remember the phone call telling you you were on? Oh, I, I, it wasn't a phone call. It was just uh, we, we were in the office and Dick came by and we were talking about this, that, and the other thing. I, actually, I think I went to see him. And uh, he said, uh, you're on the flight, just keep it clean, and you're on the flight. And he didn't have to say anything more because nothing was ever said, and I, would, and I was just automatically on the crew. So there wasn't, any t- there wasn't any point at which Deke came to me and said, okay, Al, you are now officially on Apollo 15. That had already been established. It just wasn't, it wasn't that big. Uh, well, there was a press conference and all that, but it wasn't like Deke coming out and saying, okay, now you are officially on. Because he already had made his assignment to it for us. And it works that because you were the backup on 12, you then get rostered onto one a couple of flights later, don't you? Oh, yeah. Well, our whole crew was back up on 12, Dave and Jim and I. And that was kind of the way the program worked back in those days. Your crew would become the backup, and then three flights later, they would get the duty to actually make the flight. 
like as as an example, Dave Scott was on Apollo nine. He became the backup commander on twelve, and then the prime commander on fifteen. And that's kind of the way the cycle went back in those days. I guess you always knew there was a, a possibility of going, being in the program. But when you actually knew that you were going to the moon, did that change how you felt about it? Um, not a lot, because <laughs> we'd had the best of the best in training for a year and a half to get Apollo 12 off the ground. And uh, we were pretty well known. Everything was pretty well um, you know, in the books by then. Uh, I don't think it changed. Uh, we just kept on going. We 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 actually modified our, our our training a little bit from what we'd been doing because once we got us selected on the prime crew, um, we began to focus more and more on the science and less and less on the flying because we wanted to make sure we were going to get the science all done right. for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place with linkedin you can hire professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com people today when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Hannah Fry. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's talk about the actual day of the launch. So you're you're ready to go. You're you know you're strapped in on that gantry. What is there for you to do at that point before you go? Nothing. <laughs> uh, very little to do. We're inside a spacecraft that's uh, out on the launch pad. We got there about two and a half hours early. I uh, got strapped in. The ground crew, of course, made all the connections for us, and they closed the hatch and put on the heat shield, and they drove away because it's kind of dangerous being out there. And we sat there for about two. I think we got in about. I think we finished all the insertion business at about 7.30. So we were there for like two hours before the launch. It was very quiet, very dark, very cold. We didn't have any windows to look out of, so all we could see is the interior of the spacecraft itself. And um, it was pretty boring, actually. Jim and I actually went to sleep for a while because there wasn't anything to do. And once you actually go, once the, the countdown takes place, the engines are on and you're launching, is there anything for you to do then, or are you guys essentially cargo at that point? Oh, yeah. Once we start the launch, then I won't say there's a lot to do, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of observation to do. Uh, had, to, uh, take, had to be very careful of uh, the trajectory, and, of course, I had instruments that would give me a view of the trajectory 
and I monitored those very closely to make sure we were on the right track uh, in terms of airspeed, altitude, and direction. And uh, our flight, we were exactly on, so I didn't really have much to do. Just kind of watch it and watch it go. The unusual thing about this particular Saturn launch is how heavy it was. Mm-hmm. We did have an unusual uh, situation in that we were the heaviest launch in the program, and that's because we carried a lot of equipment. We carried the lunar rover for the first time, of course. We carried along the uh, scientific instrument module, which was in the service module in an open bay that had lots and lots of remote sensing equipment, plus a couple of cameras, plus a little sub-satellite we left. It had a lot of equipment in there that uh, we used uh, during the lunar orbit phase of six days. And Dave and Jim, of course, took the lunar rover down to the surface uh, to give them more mobility on the surface. So all those things kind of added a lot of a lot of weight to what we were doing, and that meant that we were probably right at the heaviest uh, launch in the whole program of around seven million pounds on launch, on liftoff. The problem, the seven million pounds, is not important, but what is important is that we were so heavy that. Uh, when you factor in the fuel load that we had to carry, we couldn't carry enough fuel because of our weight, because of our high weight. We couldn't carry enough fuel to go into a normal altitude in our first Earth orbit. We, we, we would like to have gone into a, about a 130-mile orbit, but we could only make 90 miles because we didn't have enough fuel for the weight we had. So we had to go. We had to stay at 90 miles, which meant that was a little bit of a challenge because we only had a certain number of hours we could stay there. Uh, before the deceleration due to the atmosphere that we were flying through uh, would slow us down to the point where we'd have to re-enter and come back home. Luckily, we didn't have to do that. And so what happens then? So what happens between being in that lower than normal orbit and actually starting the journey to the moon? Nothing. It's a very standard thing. We went around the world one and a half times over Hawaii. We um, uh, lined up our, our Saturn IV propulsion system and uh, fired it off and accelerated out to uh, 20, about 25,000 miles an hour that would take us to the moon. Uh, that was a pretty easy, soft uh, acceleration and no big deal. What's the journey there like? So what sort of things are you doing? What are the conditions in the cabin? Like, is it is it cramped, I guess? No, no. By then, we were pretty, pretty stretched out and, and pretty comfortable. We had uh, enough space that we could kind of uh, stay out of each other's way and look at it, look out, you know, keep an eye out the window. We had a lower equipment bay where we had all of our navigation equipment. Of course, we had to keep track of where we were all the time, uh, both by uh, talking to mission control and by watching our nav system. So there were some things to do, but they weren't, they, they weren't overly uh, stressful. Um, actually, I think we were in pretty good shape. We, uh, we were ready for that maneuver way before we got there. And so it was a fairly easy thing. And so what then happens when you get to the moon? Describe the arrival at the moon. Well, we went, we got to the moon going backwards. We never did see the moon. You have to consider that we had to slow down by about 3,000 miles an hour to stay in lunar orbit. To do that, we had to fire the engine back. We had to fire the engine ahead of us. Uh, so that it would slow us down. If you can think of a like a, um, an airboat that um, that where you have to they have to turn it 180 degrees to slow down. They have to fire the engine going backwards. So we were going backwards into the moon, into lunar orbit, which meant we never did see the moon. Uh, the first time we saw the moon was when we got into lunar orbit, and uh, we got a chance. We had a, a chance to get everything turned around and look down at the moon. And we were about halfway around the backside of the moon before we did that. So that was the first time we saw the moon. And what's that like to see it for the first time? Well, it's pretty weird. I mean, you, you know, we talk about the moon, and we've, and we certainly, we had certainly spent a lot of time talking about what the moon is all about, and what it's like, and what it's composed of, and you know how the features got the way they are. Uh, but we weren't quite prepared to look at it that close up. Uh, it was uh, quite a, a thrilling moment, I would say, that we saw it the first time. That wears off fairly quickly because we knew what we were looking for. We had maps. We had the uh, track of, our, of where we were over the surface. We knew pretty much all of that. So after a day or so, I got pretty routine going over the going around the moon in, in orbit. And it's often said that you know one of the profoundest things about the trip is looking back at the Earth from the perspective of the moon. What was that like? Well, when you 
look back at the earth, you, you, you certainly realize that it's not the object that you grew up thinking it was. I grew up thinking the world was endless. Uh, it was There was an infinite way around it. I mean, we knew that the earth was round. It was a big sphere and all that. But when you look out a window, even a high-rise window, you don't see any of that curvature. You've got to get in an airplane and go really high to see any curvature of the Earth at all, and you've got to get away from it in the spacecraft uh, out a few hundred miles before you see the whole thing as, a, as an object, and not just as uh, from a horizon to, you know, from one side to the other. So I'd say that's the biggest thing, is that when you look back at the Earth from the moon, you see an object that is complete. It's a big sphere sitting there but it's also pretty small. I mean, when we were out at the moon looking back at the Earth, it was uh, no bigger than uh, the moon is uh, from here. Uh, there's not that much difference in the size of the two objects. So they, it, it's pretty small, and you begin to realize that, hey, the Earth is uh, 4,000 miles in uh, diameter, which seems like a lot when you're thinking about it down, sitting down here, 4,000 miles straight through, but when you're looking at it from up there, that's not very far. That's not much at all. It's pretty darn small. <laughs> This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Al Warden. We're talking about his trip to the moon. And we left us at the moon in the, uh, in the end of that last part, Al. So you mentioned on the blast-off that this was a really heavy mission. One of those reasons, there's a number of firsts on this mission. One of them would be that it's the first one with the, the famous lunar rover, the land mm-hmm. the, um, EVA vehicle. One of the things on this mission were like were the firsts. Well, obviously the lunar rover we carried that. That was the first one that was taken to the moon. Maybe even more importantly was was the scientific instrument module that I carried into the lunar orbit because in it we had two cameras. One was a very high resolution camera, uh, and the other was a mapping camera that had an associated laser altimeter uh, that recorded its height above the above the surface. Um, carried a, a whole series of remote sensors that uh, were on poles that had to be moved out and then retracted, activated, I guess, and then retracted, uh, carried a mass spectrometer, carried a small satellite that we left in lunar orbit. Uh, but I would guess that the thing that captured uh, most everybody's imagination was the two cameras that I carried. Uh, the high-resolution camera took a picture from 65 degrees left of my trajectory to 65 degrees right. Uh, So there's a 135-degree swath of lunar surface uh, that was perpendicular to the trajectory that it took, and then it would take another one and another one and another one. It kept going. And I was quite surprised because I could see objects down to about four feet. And that was a picture taken from 60 miles away. And what's even more interesting about that is that it was an obsolete camera. Uh, it's a, it was a camera that was designed back in the late back in the fifties for the U two program, and uh, the Air Force had um, come up with another camera that was obviously better. So they obsoleted that one, and we were able to take it. And Did you get the leftovers? We got the leftover. <laughs> I think the difference was that it was a it required film, and I suspect what they went to was the digital camera, mm-hmm. uh, probably even better camera, but. Digital, not, nonetheless, so that you don't have to carry all that film along into space, which is kind of a big deal. Um, but uh, with the film that we carried on our flight and the way that whole thing was set up, we got some absolutely unbelievable pictures of the moon. That, together with the mapping camera, uh, you know, we're getting some we're getting some pretty good maps of the moon now because of that. One of the other firsts of this mission it was the, it was the longest time on the moon um, up to then. Yeah. Up to then, yeah. 
Um, so Dave Scott and Jim Irwin go down to the moon. You're right. the command module pilot. Mm-hmm. And they're away for, what, three days? Yeah, three days they were down there. Um, uh, about 75 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, they did three EVAs. We Basically, they kind of doubled the lunar surface time. But they were able to do that because they had the lunar rover, which was a big uh, uh, mobility godsend for them. But yeah, that left me three days in the lunar orbit by myself, uh, which is a great time because I, now I could do everything I needed to do unrestricted. I didn't have to worry about somebody else getting in my way. So I, I, I was busy. I spent probably 20 hours a day doing stuff. So what sort of things were you doing? Well, a lot of it was photography. Um, I did a lot of photography, both handheld camera and with the, uh, with the, uh, the high-resolution camera. But cameras that were in the service module... That was all prescribed. I, all, what I had to do was go to a certain altitude, sort of, uh, start a certain rotation rate to uh, stay parallel to the lunar surface, and just turn it on. And there wasn't much I could do after yeah. that. However, with uh, the, the pictures that I took with the camera inside, uh, were some was pretty interesting. I, I did a lot of visual observations. Uh, we, did a, we, we talked a lot about craters. We talked a lot about lava flows on the moon. See, up until our flight, there was all, there had always been this discussion about what created the features on the moon, and and and, and it boiled down to there was one group of uh, geologists who thought they were all volcanic, and there the other group of geologists who thought they were all meteor impact, and of course they you know the answer was it's somewhere in the middle, it was a little of both. Uh, so one of the one of the really interesting things was me looking for evidence of current volcanic activity, sort of. Uh, what I was looking for was cinder cones, which are kind of the, uh, the, the last part of a volcanic eruption. You get all the light stuff that comes up, and when it falls down, it falls back over the vent tube, and it forms a cone with a hole in the middle. Well, I saw a whole field of these things in the Torres Littrow area, and as a matter of fact, that sighting was so important that they actually changed the landing site for Apollo 17 to go there. That's why they went to that area because I saw those cinder cones down there, and they verified that, yeah, that in fact, they were cinder They were kind of orange-colored. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were, you know, there was, there was some iron, there was some ferrous material in there. Uh, but, they, yeah, they found the cinder cones down there. And it was, you know, um, who knows, I mean, the last volcanic gasp was maybe 10 million years ago, who knows, but, but it was volcanic, yeah. And, and your mission was the first to go to the, the region of the moon that your guys landed on. So why was that region chosen? Back up just a little bit. All the flights before ours uh, landed in a band of about plus or minus 10 degrees from the lunar equator. The reason they did that was because we knew the gravitational constants there. We had all kinds of unmanned satellites, lunar orbiters. Uh, We had uh, Apollo 11, Apollo 12, Apollo 14 all landed in that band. And it was, you know, it was safer, let's say. Well, it was, when our flight came along, uh, we wanted to really step out a lot further. So we picked a landing site that was 27 degrees north of Hadley Rill, uh, which is a spectacular region uh, in the Palace Putridinus, which of course means stinking swamp, is where we landed. Uh, but the, it was the 27 degrees north that, uh, that was the interesting thing because at 27 degrees of inclination, we didn't know what the mass cons were. We didn't know what the mass concentrations, what the gravitational attraction of the moon's going to be like and whether it was going to affect our trajectory a little, a lot, or not at all, or whatever. And it did affect us. Uh, we found that uh, we had to, when Dave and Jim got in the lunar module and left me, we, we had just spent the night before. We got up in the morning and found out that we our, our trajectory had been perturbed quite a bit and that we better get the hell out of there. So I got Dave and Jim in the lunar module, and as soon as they did, I got back to 60-mile orbit. Uh, we were pretty close. We were... We're over Mount Hadley by probably anywhere from seven to 10,000 feet. So we're getting down pretty close. So we got Dave and Jim on their way. I went back to 60 miles. But those, that particular 27-degree inclination orbit was just something that was a big gamble. We didn't know. Uh, we proved that even with the mass cons affecting us the way they did, uh, that we could tweak it. It's not not a problem. Once you know what you're dealing yeah. with, it's not a problem. They didn't have to worry about that within that 10 or, plus or minus 10 degree belt because they knew what the mass guns were. 
So that was kind of the, one of the interesting things about what we did. In that three days while you're alone, you have this Guinness Book of Records accolade of like the most isolated human being. Mm, yeah. When this is going on, I mean, do you have any sort of you know feeling existentially that that's that you're that no. that's happening? Nah, 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 no. Nah. In fact, it took forty years for Guinness to give me the record. <laughs> Uh, so you know, you know, it takes a while for that to sink in. Uh, so and, did you and, ever think I'm I'm completely alone? Eh? Well, no, you don't think of that. Mike Collins was, uh, uh, Dick Gordon was. Not at the uh, same time. Uh, well, no, but you know, they, uh, all the command module pilots did the same thing I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's I, I wasn't the only one, but Guinness happened to pick me to be the most lonely. You know, the most alone. There might have been a trajectory thing in there. I've never yeah. really checked it out. There had to be some reason that they picked me to, to, for that. But uh, it might have also been because I was available. I don't know. <laughs> We're at Oxford having a glass of wine. And they said, okay, you get a, you, you get a certificate. The one they gave me that was, that was true, uh, that will never be beaten, uh, was I did the first deep space spacewalk. Was this while you were alone? No, 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 this is on the way back home. Oh, I was going to say, because yeah. that sounds incredibly dangerous. No, 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 you would never do that alone by, by yourself. No, on the way back home, but we had to recover all the film from those two big cameras out yeah. there. And so I had to go out and get that, get the film and bring it back in. Uh, but that is one that will always be there because of the way it's worded. The, the wording is, did the first deep space walk. Well, we could go a million times further out into space than I was, but I still had the first deep space, mm-hmm. so that was a good one. I'm Eric Schlosser, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So let's let's go back to the um, to the rendezvous then. So mm-hmm. you've, you've told the, the guys that they've got to they've sort of got to get out. What happens? How do you how do you that far out in space meet up with the um, with the lunar lander? It's actually it's not as difficult as you might think. We knew exactly what the launch trajectory of the ascent stage was. What I had to do before they launched was I had to I had to change my trajectory see for the three days I was there by myself the moon keeps rotating but I'm in inertial space mm-hmm. so my trajectory is sliding over the lunar surface a little bit each day moving to the west I think so what I had to do was change my trajectory so I came back over the landing site one more time and so we did that before they launched and then we knew that all, all the numbers, we, we knew those precisely, so we could launch them. They'd come into lunar orbit, and we could launch them at a time where we knew precisely how far behind me they would be in orbit. And it was easy. They, were, they weren't that far behind. Now, all they had to do was get in a little bit lower orbit around the moon, and the lower the orbit, the faster you go. So they, they were gradually catching up with me. And when they got close enough, they, uh, I did the docking. I did all the rest of the final because mm-hmm. the ascent stage was so light that every time they hit a reaction control system engine, it way overpowered what they wanted to do. So they had to be pretty careful with that. So they got it settled down as best they could, and then I did the dock. I did the final rendezvous and docking from the command module. Looking back on this from today, mm-hmm. how do you sort of see going to the moon in your life? Is it still your greatest achievement? We... It's a great achievement, no question about it. It was a fun thing to do. I look at going to the moon as a period in my life where we did something really good for the country and probably for the world. Definitely we, for the world. We, we advanced our ability to go somewhere tremendously by going to the moon. As an achievement, I've always looked on it as simply acquiring the skill to fly a machine to go to the moon, like flying an airplane or driving a car or riding a bicycle or whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. But that's a skill. Now, you say, is that the most important thing in your life? And I say, 
I don't think so. Because I think there are intellectual pursuits here on earth that will have more impact on what people do and will have more effect on how the world lives than going to the moon. And so I think there are intellectual pursuits like, like what you do. I mean, this takes a lot of intellectual power to do a thing like you're doing this interview. I mean, you've got to be thinking every single second. I think that requires a thought process that you don't need to go to the moon. Going to the moon is learning to fly a machine. It's a skill. Never but you've got to be thinking about what you're doing, okay? <laughs> and so I think that the intellectual pursuits here on Earth that really tax our ability yeah. to do things could be more important than just going to the moon. So you were around the moon on the 26th of July to the, mm-hmm. to the 7th of August, 1971. Mm-hmm. I was about two months old at that point. Sorry. When you were there, so I don't remember <laughs> <laughs> um, And we got up to what, Apollo 17, and since then we've not been back. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you'll, if you'll forgive me for saying so, there's going to be a, a point in the future where there's going to be nobody alive who's been to the moon. True. Did you think at the time that we... We wouldn't be going back. Well, I didn't. Going back to the moon is no big deal. I wouldn't go back there. If I were in charge of the program, I would not send somebody back to the moon because the moon really doesn't do anything yeah. for us. Uh, I would be pointing our spacecraft at Mars, realizing that even by going to Mars, it's just one more step. That's not what we want. We need something else further out. And it's called survival of the species because we know that the Earth is not going to last forever. The time will come when we're going to have to go somewhere else, and we got to find that place. And I think finding the, finding the place to go is probably not the problem. The problem is developing the propulsion that will get us there in a lifetime, because I think the way it is now, 3.2 light years away, my gosh, if, if you're going you know, just a fraction of the speed of light, it's going to take you years and years and years, a whole lifetime to get there. Uh, so we got to figure out how to go fast, how to get someplace, how to get to a terrestrial object like the Earth that will sustain life. And we gotta, we got to get there uh, and look back and watch the Earth get destroyed by the sun. Because it will someday. We know that. That's what you'd like to do. What do you think we're going to do? What's the, what do you think the, the, the state of the space program is at the moment? Well, I think, I think we'll probably, at some point, we're going to head to Mars. I think there's no question about that. I think we'll keep moving forward, but it's going to be in stops and starts. It's going to be a little bit here and a little bit there, and it's going to be absolutely nothing for years. Uh, I think we have uh, there, there. There are all kinds of examples of how research programs like space get funded. But what you find is, if you discover something out there, you get a lot of funding, and then when the novelty wears off, the funding goes away, and it's, so it cycles. And I think we're in one of those cycles right now. Uh, I think we're going to find something on Mars. Uh, it's not going to be like the Martian. I mean, it's not going to be that kind of thing. Uh, I don't think there's going to be, we're ever going to find anything on Mars that we could tailor to, uh, to, to sustain us there. I don't think we're going to do that. Uh, but it's another step out, and uh, I think we've got to develop that capability. But I think it's going to be a long time. I don't, I don't see us getting anywhere. The secret to everything is in the propulsion. If you don't have the propulsion, you're not going to go anywhere. If you got the propulsion you, and you can go where you want to go, then we've got Star Trek, and we'll get there someday. That's a perfect point for us to finish. So <laughs> I've been talking to Colonel Al Warden. It's been an absolute honor talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with me. Yeah, good, Neil. Thank you. Although now, now I know that it's harder to make a podcast than go <laughs> Yeah, right. You can interview me. <laughs> You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Adams was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Adams podcast on iTunes and follow the show on Twitter at Little Adams. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleadams.com. Thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 